Well, Mother's Day is just one of those big family holidays. I love Mother's Day, rightly so. I think all of us, when we think about our lives, we look at our mothers, uh, whether they are with us or not, and we all know, I, I think, the influence that our mothers have had in shaping us, uh, whether it's a, a great influence or a small influence, uh, how important our mothers are to us. I, I'm reminded about this every year. I, I watched the NFL draft. It happened a couple of weeks ago, or, or last week, actually. And uh, I watched the NFL draft um, every year because I, I need to be humbled as a Jaguars fan because we'd always do so lousy. And uh, I, I watch it for that and also because there's a part of it that I enjoy. I watch these young men who have worked all their lives. Some of them have come from through very difficult situations and circumstances. And they now have made it to the NFL. And you see these big, brawny, huge guys, world-class athletes. And a lot of them are crying now that they've made it. And the first words out of their mouth are, I want to thank my mama. And it's so heartwarming. And then sometimes you see these same guys, you know, they, they get that big, uh, that big signing bonus. And what's one of the first things they do? They buy mama a house. You know, because they remember what, you know, some of their stories are incredible, what they, what they lived in and how they've come up. And they want to take care of mama. And isn't that great? I mean, I just love that aspect of what all the other junk that can happen in professional sports. I, I love that aspect of it on Mother's Day. But it, and, and we see that kind of thing and think about that on Mother's Day. But even as we uh, acknowledge our moms today and we focus on the importance of families, uh, we know there are no perfect moms. Mine was pretty close, but she wasn't perfect. And we certainly know that there are no perfect families. This is Adolf and Rudolph Dassler. They were known as Adi and Rudy. Adi and Rudy. In 1924, they started, uh, they went into business together. And they started making shoes, athletic shoes, in their mother's laundry room in a small Bavarian town of Haraganarak. I probably butchered that, Isabel, but that's about as close as I can get it. Adi was the designer, the craftsman, the inventor, and he designed and invented screw-in spikes. Those of you who played golf, you know, or, you know, those of us who played baseball back in the day, we had screw-in spikes, soccer spikes, you screw them in, track and field, your spikes that you screw in. He invented these things, right? And, and Rudy, he was the salesman. He was the charismatic businessman and the business development guy. And they start working on this. Their big break came in the 1936 Summer Olympics. They show up in Berlin, and Adi has a suitcase filled with his sprinter spikes. And he brings them to the American sprinter, Jesse Owens. Remember him? The African-American who totally destroyed Hitler's plans to to showcase the master race. And this African-American sprinter wins four gold medals wearing Audi's spikes. And, and not just Jesse Owens, some other runners wear his spikes. Three other gold medals, five silver medals, and a bronze medal are won by runners wearing Audi's and Rudy's uh, tennis shoes. And so overnight, their business just explodes. The next year, 
200,000 orders come in and their business is up and running. Dassler Shoes is taking off. Of course, the war interrupts it. Rudy is a committed Nazi. And this creates tension between him and Adi. Lots of tension. The, the plant has to be turned towards the war effort. Apparently, in the middle of the war, during a bombing raid, they have to take shelter together, their families, and Adi, as he comes into the bunker, says something along the lines of, the, the, the pig dogs are here, referring to the bombers, but Rudy and his wife take it personally, and things begin to devolve in their relationship. Apparently, there was some lines crossed in intimacy-wise between Rudy and Adi's wife. Other things happened. But ultimately, in 1948-49, they split. They go their separate ways. There was a river running through the town, and Rudy goes to the other side of the river, and he starts his own business, a shoe business, and he calls it Ruda. Uh, that name doesn't market very well, being the marketing guy that he is, so he changes it to Puma. How many of you have heard of Puma? Right, exactly, Puma. He starts Puma shoes and Puma sportswear. Audi takes the, the first three letters of his last name and combines it with his nickname, and, and he forms the company Adidas. And so in this little town, Bavarian town, you have this, what is now the second and third largest sportswear companies in the world, and the town is divided between these two families, Adidas and Puma. And, and if you were an Adidas family, if you wore Adidas clothing, there were butcher shops that you could not walk into. There were restaurants that you didn't go to. If you wore Puma clothing and you went into an Adidas pub, you took your life into your hands. It was that serious in this town. If, if you were a guy, a boy, and you were born into an Adidas family, you did not date, much less marry, a girl from a Puma family. It was this serious. When Rudy and Audie died, their families buried them in the same church cemetery. But they put their bodies on opposite sides as far apart as they physically could be located. What a feud. What a feud that takes place that divided a town. In 2009, representatives from Puma and representatives from Adidas came together and they played a soccer match against one another. And they made it management against the workers and they mingled the two companies in an effort to heal the town because of the feud that had been created between everyone by these two brothers. All of us have probably participated in family tiffs, family arguments. That happens in every family. Some of you have probably had the misfortune of being part of a family feud and you felt the pain of, of broken relationships that ended and maybe have gone years with not having any fellowship with a family member because of that misunderstanding. Certainly Jesus understands how complex and complicated and how difficult family relationships can be. Jesus had a human family. He, was, he lived in a human nation, in a nation with a deep spiritual heritage, but a cultural heritage that revolved around the family unit. Remember, Jesus was 100% God, 100% man. He was perfectly God, 
perfectly divine, but he was perfectly human also. And with that human nature came a human family, and with that human family and nature came, as we see in this passage, a family feud, a family tiff, a family argument that divided the family. And so this morning, we're going to go through this passage of Scripture. We're going to do it in sections and, and kind of study it together. So we'll read through it and stop and talk about it and apply it, and then we'll move on as we look at this passage, beginning in verse 21, 20, verse 20 and 21. Let's begin with the rescue. Then he, Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again so that he, they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now, just for some context here, Jesus has begun his ministry. He's already gone through the 40 days of, of testing and tribulation and trials in the wilderness from Satan. He has chosen his 12 disciples. He's begun to preach and teach and, and to baptize. He has begun to heal people from diseases, to cast out demons, to raise someone from the dead. He is, he's become a celebrity. His social media has just exploded. He's got hundreds of thousands of followers. It's so bad that when he, he teaches, he has a boat in the water so that he can actually step into the boat and teach because the crowd was so thick that it, would, it was in danger of crushing him. He was so busy that when he would go to like say Peter's house at night in Capernaum, he couldn't sleep because people would bang on the door to come and, and get help with the, the diseases, the maladies. And, and so he wasn't resting, he wasn't sleeping. There was no time to eat. He was, he was tired, he was worn out. And his family is concerned for him. They're concerned for him for a number of reasons. You know, obviously, he's the head of the family. Joseph has died. And so that means the oldest son is now the head of the family. And so that's Jesus. And he's in charge of the family business. He's the, carp the lead carpenter. And why, why are you stirring up all this trouble? I mean, because trouble's coming his way. It's already coming his way. And, and he's already getting pushback. And his family is concerned. Obviously, Mary's concerned because Mary's a mother. And every mother, I mean, young people, just, just get used to it. Whether you're 10, 20, 40, 50, 60, if your mom lives into her 90s and you're 70, if you go visit her and you look a little tired, she's going to say, are you getting enough sleep? Or if, you know, you look a little too weak, she goes, are you, she's going to say, are you eating right? Are you getting enough to eat? Or if it's clear you're getting enough to eat, she's going to say, do you need to go on a diet, right? Because moms are moms until the day they die. They are your mom, and they are always gonna be your mom. And so no doubt Mary's concern is simply because she is a loving, caring mom. You know moms, have you ever put yourself in Mary's shoes when she's at the foot of the cross? And what was that going through her mind? and her heart, the agony of her. I mean, that, that just, just gives a different perspective on what happened at that day, thinking about Mary. But his brother's concerned, it has a malevolent bent to it. 
Not, not too much longer after this point in time, in the book of John, we read something that's going on. It's a festival time, and, and Jesus is up in Galilee, and, and he interacts with his brothers, his, his physical, earthly brothers. And, and what you read in this passage is they're sarcastic. He, Jesus says, no, I'm not going to go to Jerusalem and, and for the festival. I, I think I'm going to stay here. And the reason why is because already the Jewish leaders are plotting to kill him. And, and they want him gone, and it's the Feast of the Booths. And so his brothers, and they're saying this sarcastically. They're mocking him. They're say, they say to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. In other words, they're saying, well, listen, if you really are the Messiah, like everyone says you are, and like you say you are, then why won't you go? Well, you ought to be proud to go up there and proclaim yourself. If you really are God, I mean, come on. What's wrong, Jesus? I mean, you have a typical brother mocking and everything else going on here. And John makes it clear, for not even his brothers believed him. So what you see here in these opening pages, opening verses in Mark chapter three is that while Mary's concern is grounded because Mary loves her son, she's concerned about him, her brother, his brothers, their concern is grounded in unbelief. His brothers, they just think he's nuts. You're out of your mind. He's insane. You're a lunatic. Our, our brother has lost his mind. He's off his rocker. He's claiming to be God in the flesh, the Messiah. Can you believe this? The response of the brothers may be the response of some of you this morning. So many through the centuries have responded to Jesus' claims to be God in the flesh, to be our only hope of salvation in the same way. They mock him they say, ah, oh, he, he, he just had a, he had a Messiah complex. Oh, he was a good guy and nice guy and said some nice things, but nah, he, he wasn't really God. He, he was just, you know, woo-hoo, a little crazy, that's all. That's a common response. Jesus' immediate family, they're upset with him. They set out to rescue him. The next several verses, nine verses, they actually show that their concern over his welfare is justified. And it's not just because he's not getting enough sleep and not getting enough rest. It's justified because his message and his work is creating extreme responses from the religious leadership. And so as we move to verses 22 and onward, you begin to see the resistance that is here among the leadership of the country. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. You see, they could not deny that what Jesus was doing was real. It it was obvious that he was healing the sick. And and this isn't psychosomatic sickness. This isn't, you know, I have a backache and you come to Jesus and all of a sudden, I don't have a backache anymore, okay? This isn't psychosomatic stuff. This is people who were crippled, who were handicapped, who had never walked for decades, and everybody knew that this, and now they're walking and jumping around, and people who had actually died, who were resurrected, or people who were demon-possessed and were able to do incredible feats of strength, like breaking chains, and were terrorizing countrysides, and were violent, 
And now they're at peace and they're in their right mind. People who had leprosy and before their very eyes of all the crowd, the leprosy disappears. These are obvious miracles, so much so that even his critics and the people who want him dead, they cannot deny that these things occurred. So instead, they come up with an alternate explanation. Oh, the power at work here isn't because he is God in the flesh, that he's the promised Messiah. The reason why he can do these things is he himself is possessed by the prince of demons, Beelzebul. And he called them to them, Jesus does. And he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against itself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. It makes no sense what you're saying about me, leaders. Satan does not work against his own self-interest. What's happening here is in order for me to inaugurate the kingdom of God, I have to bind the person who has been in control of your lives and the lives of this nation and this world. That strong man is Satan. And what I'm doing is binding that strong man so that the kingdom of God may be inaugurated and may grow. John will picture this in the book of Revelation in chapter 20, and he uses metaphorical language when he says, I saw Satan bound with a chain for a thousand years. And that's that figurative language of just for a long, long time, Satan is bound so that the kingdom of God can grow. And then the picture is the, the kingdom and people coming to Christ because the strong man has been bound. That's what Jesus did when he came. He, he bound the strong man. He says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin for they were seeing, saying he has an unclean spirit. These religious leaders, they resisted Jesus for many reasons. He chooses disciples who are common men. They are fishermen. They don't have the pedigree of going through rabbinical schools. Jesus himself, he's a carpenter from Nazareth of all places. Has anything good ever come out of Nazareth? They will mockingly ask, Bething. Uh, he, he doesn't follow their traditions and their interpretations of the law, but, but most importantly, the reason why they are so set against Jesus is that he is preaching to them and to all the people of Israel, like John the Baptist, the need for the repentance of their sins. But he goes a step further than John the Baptist. Jesus actually forgives people of their sins. And the religious leaders, when they see this, the Pharisees, the scribes, when they see and hear Jesus forgiving people of their sins, saying, your sins are forgiven, they go, oh, time out, time out. Hold the train. Only God can forgive sins. Exactly. Bingo. 
You got it. That's right. That's why I'm forgiven sins. Blasphemer. And they begin to plot his death. See, they understood what Jesus was saying and what Jesus was claiming. And his brothers understood it. And that's why his brothers say, you're off your rocker. You're nuts. And the religious leaders, they say, you're, no, you're lying. Why, why would they resist like this? Why would they say, you're lying to us. You're not the Messiah. You're not God. Why would they not accept it? Why would they not submit? Because they wanted God and salvation on their terms. See, if Jesus had come mimicking and echoing their preconceived ideas of God and salvation, welcome, yes, we've been waiting for you. But he didn't, and so they reject him. Is this something that maybe characterizes your relationship with Jesus? Is the reason why you struggle with Jesus is because he's not meeting your concept and your understanding of, of what it should be? You're okay with Jesus, but only if it's on your terms? Are you like these guys? You're, you're putting yourself in the same boat and rejecting him because what he's saying about himself Nah, nah. It's interesting. With, with Jesus' family and these two Pharisees, and in these Pharisees, you have two of the classical responses that, that C.S. Lewis says people have towards Jesus that are logical, anyway. They may not be right, but they're logical. Okay. C.S. Lewis says when, when you come to Jesus, people always want to say, oh, Jesus, I, yeah, you know. I don't believe he's God, but I like him. He was a good man. I, I, I talked with someone just recently who said, yeah, you know, I, I don't believe, I, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe that Jesus was actually God. And that, that just blows my mind. You know, I, don't, I never understand that. Why do you call yourself a Christian? I mean, call yourself something, anything else, but call yourself, you know, a moron, but I don't care what you call yourself, but don't call yourself a Christian if you don't believe Jesus is God. That just doesn't make sense. He said, but, but I love what Jesus taught. He was such a great guy. And, and, and I said, no. And that was C.S. Lewis's point. You know, you can say any number of things about Jesus, but what you cannot say is that he was just a good guy. That's not logical. What's logical is if you reject who Jesus is, is what's logical is like the brothers, you're nuts, Jesus. You're, you're a lunatic. You're crazy. What's logical is to say, oh no, he was a liar. He was just a con man. That's a logical conclusion. Or it's logical to say, oh, he's Lord. He, he actually is who he says he is. You know, any of those responses are logical, and one of those three is actually correct. And of course, as Christians, we believe the last one is correct, that he's Lord. But what's not logical is to say that he was a good guy. No, that's not logical. If, if he's a liar or a lunatic. How about the response to Jesus? Verse 31, and his mother and his brothers came 
And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Now, remember where we are in the story. It started with a picture of what was going on in the family. They're concerned. We got to go get Jesus. He's nuts. At least the brothers felt that way. And then we have this interlude. Uh, There was justification for them to be concerned, at least if they're over the reason, because of the resistance that he's getting and the plot to kill him from the religious leaders. Now they arrive to where Jesus is at. They come here. The story now returns to his earthly family. They've arrived. They're calling out for Jesus. The people come. They interrupt Jesus' sermon. And they say, hey, your family's outside. By the way, there's these guys with some white coats. Don't be alarmed. (laughs) Your, Your family's outside, and they're here to take you home. They're here for you. And Jesus responds with a statement that is absolutely shocking to this culture. Remember, this is a culture that is built around the family unit. The honoring of your father and your mother and your parents, that trumps everything. And so Jesus says, when they say, hey, your mom is outside, he says, who's my mother? Here's my mother. Who's my brothers and sisters? Here's my brothers and sisters. Wow. Now, listen, through the centuries, critics of Jesus have tried to jump on this and say, oh, oh, here you go. Here's the reality. He's an egomaniacal jerk. How can you say that about your mom, you know, and, and honor your father and mother? I mean, that's a very unmother day type of thing to say right there. You know, on their mother's day, he had to bring two boxes of chocolate and 24 roses, not just one dozen, right? That, that's, not, that's not what's going on here. Jesus is not rejecting his earthly family here. No, not at all. Jesus loved his mother perfectly. He loved his brothers perfectly. And the proof is what takes place later. Think about it for a moment. Here's Mary enduring the agony of seeing her son on the cross. And when Jesus is in the deepest moment of that agony, when he is bearing our sins upon himself so that we could be reconciled to God when he's bearing that punishment that we deserve at a critical moment right before he dies he looks and he sees his mother and the agony of his mother and next to her is the apostle John the the apostle that was so dear to Jesus and in the pain and the agony and torture of that moment when Jesus is fulfilling that eternal redemptive moment The whole reason why he came, he still stops. And he says, John, behold your mother. And he turns to Mary, and I think he said, Mama. Okay, maybe he said, Mother. Behold your son. Do you see how how precious that moment is? How much Jesus loved his mother 
that he takes time out in the grand scene of redemptive history when he's paying for your sins and my sins so that we can be reconciled to God. I mean, this is the most significant moment in human history. He says, time out. Mom, here's your son. He's taking care of his mom. Isn't that awesome? Doesn't that tell you something about our Savior? And how much he loved her. And he clearly loves his brothers. He, he ensures that their skepticism and their sarcasm and their scorn is turned to worship. And they are converted. And he appears to them and they realize he is the risen Lord. He wasn't lying to you. He wasn't crazy. He wasn't a lunatic. And his brother James, we've We've bumped into him already as we've gone to the book of Acts. He becomes the chief pastor of the church in Jerusalem, one of the apostles that leads that church in the decades after Jesus' death. He loves his mother and his brother. But, but with this statement, here are your mothers, your brothers, and your sisters. Jesus is establishing an important spiritual eternal truth that as Christians— we are going to inevitably feel more at home with our eternal family, with those who follow Christ, than we will our earthly family who rejects Jesus Christ. Now, the best of all worlds is an earthly family that follows Jesus Christ. That's the best of all worlds. And that's why we put so much effort in our church to our children and making sure that the, the faith that is so important is passed to our children so that our, our families know Jesus. That's the best of all worlds. But listen, you will quickly realize as you grow in your relationship in, with Christ that you will have more in common with fellow Christians than oftentimes your, your blood relatives, especially those blood relatives who reject Jesus Christ. And it's actually not uncommon to have a closer relationship with siblings in Christ than you even have with earthly siblings who may be Christians. It happens. Because when we follow Christ, we are born into an eternal family that transcends the earthly realm. We experience something through the gospel that is hard to understand. But what Jesus will tell his disciples later is in Mark 10 is, listen, when you leave father, mother, brothers, sisters, when you leave your, your careers and your money and everything else behind, when you sacrifice it for my sake, understand what you gain in return is you gain hundreds of mothers and hundreds of fathers and hundreds of brothers and sisters and lands and blessings way beyond whatever you sacrifice in order to follow me. And that's true. I mean, I, would, I have been blessed, blessed with a wonderful father and mother and sisters. But, but I've also been so blessed with a number of men in my life that I look to who've had as much impact on my life spiritually as my, as my earthly dad. 
Many of you would say you have men and women in your life who've had more impact on you spiritually than your earthly parents did because your earthly parents maybe were not believers or maybe they were nominal believers. And you have a closer spiritual relationship with a Christian friend who you can actually be honest with and talk with, you're in biblical community with them than you do your earthly siblings. You know, it's sometimes hard people who you're raised with to get to a certain level of spiritual transparency and authenticity with them because they always see you as that little brat <laughs> or whatever. It's hard. It's part of our sinful nature. But the gospel, it unites people that would otherwise be divided. And the gospel divides those who would normally be united. Jesus says, I come and I divide families. That's what the gospel does. So as Christians, we will inevitably feel most at home with our eternal family. This is one of the reasons why we stress in our church the importance of biblical community so much. Guys, I'm getting a lot of static out of this monitor if we could kill it. Why we stress biblical community so much in our church is because we need these relationships, this, these relationships that will sustain us during the trials of life, oftentimes more than even our physical families. Thank you, Paxton. Young people, this one simple fact right here is why God tells you not to marry someone who isn't committed to Jesus Christ. The gospel the impact of the gospel on a marriage, when you have one person who believes and one person who does not, it is really, really hard. It's difficult. The gospel divides people who would normally be united. It severs and it can create tension and nowhere do you see this more than in dating relationships and marriage relationships and in homes where one partner is a Christian and one is not. And so young people, this is why we tell you, do not even date someone who is not committed to Jesus Christ like you are. I don't care how handsome he is or how beautiful she is or whatever all the great qualities are, no. No! Run away. God has someone better. Listen to your pastor this morning. Jesus closes out his response with one thing. An important reminder for all of us. We'll close with verse 35. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. How do you know whether you are part of that transcendent family? How do you know whether you are his brother, his sister? Because he says, here's my brother and sister. In other words, here's my eternal family. Here are the people who have been reconciled to God, who will be with me in all of eternity. The family that really, really matters the most, that eternal family. How do you know whether you are part of this transcendent family of God? When I ask this question to people. In fact, I ask it to you right now. How do you know? 
What answer pops into your head? How would you answer that question? It's interesting how often I ask that question and the answers that are given to me are fueled by easy believism Christianity. The results of modern Christianity and the answers are all over the place. But if you look at what Jesus says, he does not give us the luxury of trite, unbiblical answers. Not at all. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. What is he saying? How do you know? How do you know? Well, do you sit at the feet of Jesus and fellowship with him? Do you obey God? Are you following Jesus with the normal rhythms and patterns of your life throughout the, the week and as you go? Or, or is it just a Sunday activity? Are you here this morning because something within you wants to be here to worship God? Or are you here for another reason? Be honest. Be honest. Is the occupying concern of your heart to love God? That's what Jesus is getting at. Is the occupying concern of your heart to love God, to live for God, to see Him glorified in your life, in your family? Do you grieve? when you don't? Is there sorrow when you don't obey? Is there conviction when you choose self over our Lord Jesus? Is there a desire to repent and to be made whole with our Heavenly Father when we choose to sin? instead of to, to obey. That's how you know. Is that going on in your life this morning? Let's bow our heads together. As we bow our heads, I want us to take a few moments this morning to spend some time in directed prayer in response to the message. Let's begin this morning, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed in worship and prayer, and let's take just, first of all, let's take a few moments. Let's thank God for our mothers. Many of us were raised by godly mothers. Many of us have had spiritual mothers who've been in our lives, made us who we are. Let's take a few moments. Let's thank God for these women. Now let's pray for the women in our church who are actively raising the next generation. And what I mean by that is 
they still have the children in the home. Their lives are busy and hectic and all that comes with being a mom with children who have not yet reached adulthood. Let's pray for these sisters in Christ. God would bless them and fill them with his spirit. He would use them to lead their children to Christ. finally this morning, I want to pray for specific people in our church. If you're here this morning and you would say, Jerry, you closed out with the questions about being a part of the family of God. And when I think about it and I look at my life, I'm really unsure of whether or not I am a part of that family. And would you pray for me? If that's where you are this morning and you're uncertain of your standing before God, would you, I'm not going to embarrass you, I'm just going to pray for you. Would you just indicate that by, would you raise your hand real quick? I want to see who you are. I want to pray for you specifically. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Anyone else I pray for you this morning? Listen, let me, as I pray for you, I want you to know I'm always available to anyone in our church, whether you are a member, a visitor, guest, I'll meet with you at your convenience to talk to you about your relationship with God. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the authenticity, the honesty of those who raise their hands. Lord, there may have been others who, for different reasons, maybe fear, uh, did not. Lord, I pray for the, these this morning, that you would move in their hearts, that you would take them either to me or to others that they can trust to get the answers that they need so that they can have that certainty, that assurance that they are part of your family. Would you do a work of redemption and assurance in their hearts for your glory and for their good, we ask these things, amen.